The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is uh, author and professor Ingrid Blaufarb-Hughes. Uh, her new book is Losing Aaron. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Losing Aaron is the story of the life and death of Aaron Hughes, as told by Ingrid Blaufarb Hughes. She describes her family's struggle with her son's mental illness and brings to light the complexity of a mother's loss and the gratitude for the time she had with him. In the end, he took his own life at the age of 31. Uh, Hughes is a poet, teacher, and activist, attended Columbia University, and for many years taught English to immigrants and native New Yorkers on several campuses of the City University of New York. Welcome to the show, Ingrid. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. I'm very happy to be with you. Well, really, we're talking about, uh, in your book, Losing Aaron, a memoir, uh, Living with Mental Illness. And, of course, this is one your story, uh, I guess, is one of the most difficult topics to really talk about, a mother losing her son, a, ma- to, a mother losing her son and a mother losing her son to uh, suicide at the age of 31. So um, I read your book with tears in my eyes most of the time. Um, but you have a lot to share with us and I guess to to help other families who might find themselves in the same kind of situation, living with, really, I call it catastrophic mental illness, schizophrenia. Yes, um, it is a catastrophic mental illness. Um, absolutely, it's the most devastating illness. Uh, it, it transforms a person. Uh, in our case, Aaron was uh, mostly untreated. He rejected all medications. He didn't want to have anything to do with psychiatrists, uh, with, with one or two brief periods where he tried a treatment. So he was living with untreated mental illness for a number of years before he took his own life. And in the United States, according to statistics, or the ones that I have, one in every hundred Americans live with schizophrenia, and every year one in five Americans experience mental illness, and 43,000 take their own lives. Uh, so that's yep. a, you know, that, yeah, that's a pretty startling, those are pretty startling statistics, I would say, and obviously uh, scary at the same time. Uh, but let's start with... Aaron's life because he didn't start out with schizophrenia or diagnosed with it or living. He started out as this, I'm just going to say brilliant young man, talented, all of those kinds of things. And it was kind of, it seems to me, insidious as some of the 
symptoms began to occur as he got to, let's say, middle high school. Yes, he was a very lovely youngster. Uh, there were no childhood indicators. Um, he was um, he had many interests. He was uh, by the time he got to high school, he he knew that what he really loved was physics and the calculus that he would need and to do physics problems. He was sweet and helpful and had friends and girlfriends. Uh, He was happy in the family. There were, you know, no indicators. And we all... uh, came to rely on him because he was so helpful and so brilliant and he seemed to be able to do anything. And so there, uh, so there was nothing in his childhood, like if we're talking to other parents or other families, that you really could have detected, even in hindsight, that no, maybe... No. And, no. And, and do you... Yeah, okay. And he had your family, yourself, your husband, and his, your daughter, his sibling. Yes, right. That so nothing. Yeah. Nothing. No. I, they were, he was just this lovely, wonderful child. I can't, I, I can't see anything in his childhood. And um, other people do very sadly have um, symptoms of schizophrenia from quite a young age. That can happen. Although more usually the symptoms don't begin and the break, the psychotic break doesn't happen until uh, young people are in their late teens or even their early 20s. That's fairly common as a social worker and and working with teens. Uh, That is a common kind of... um, period of time when when these kinds of diagnoses are made in mental illness, uh, bipolar, uh, schizophrenia, um, psychotic breaks, but maybe because of the changes in, in, the, in the physical that occur in, at, at that age. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the statistic is that 70% of mental illness is diagnosed by the age of 24 so it happens in late adolescence, early adulthood. Yeah. So with and that Aaron, was what happened? Sorry. No. So that's what ha- happened with Aaron. When were you first? Did, did you get an inkling that something was not right with Aaron? I. Um. That's I. You know, looking back. I can um, see problems before I saw them at the time. So I knew that he was um, upset and uh, depressed and and kind of disturbed um, in his first year at of graduate school at MIT. I. Um, he came to visit me. He, uh, I was living in New York at that time. I had left his father, um, and 
just recently left his father, and I was living in a little apartment in Brooklyn, and he came to visit me, and he burst into tears and over a memory of something that had happened several years earlier when he was at Swarthmore, and he was he was crying so hard and seemed so upset. I got him to go to a family therapist with me. I didn't think I could get him to go to a psychiatrist on his own, so we knew a family therapist, and he went with me and um, had one session with her. He, Of course, this was in New York, and he was in Boston. It couldn't be a regular thing. And then I, I couldn't figure out what to do. He didn't want to talk to us much on the phone until one day I was speaking to him on the phone and he seemed so upset and I said, I really would like to help. And he said, well, maybe you do want to help and maybe you know that people are in the street are making fun of me in an organized and systematic way. So at that point, I knew yeah. there was, you know, he was in another place. He yeah, the, he had the, had a, a break. And uh, and for you, when you heard him say that, and then obviously it sounds like uh, uh, paranoid ideations, I guess you would say. But um, he was his mother. How did you feel? I mean, the I guess part of what comes out, I think, in the book is that feeling of hopelessness or the inability to do something about it or maybe even feeling guilty I'm, I'm, so well at, at that moment I felt just like uh, I just really frightened um, that you know this was something I didn't understand I, I clearly he was psychotic um, I was very frightened. Um, he did agree. I, I, I got hold of the name of some of a psychiatrist who he could see in Boston. And but I just my immediate reaction was I just felt gutted. I just felt this awful, frightened, and then just emptied out, uh, cleaned out, just, uh, you know, wandering through my days. Um, so what then, would you say to another parent? I mean, Ingrid, what would you say to another parent who that happens to, who suddenly gets, like you say, who has the realization, you know, my son or my daughter is really sick. I mean, they are schizophrenic. I mean, what they're saying it is is obviously the symptom of a real serious mental illness. What do you? Yes, I could, would say uh, get help as fast as you can. <laughs> I would say uh, go to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Educate yourself. Um, meet other parents who are living with this who may be further along than you are. Um, support your youngster in every way you can. Um, try to be with your youngster. Um, just uh, 
you're entering a whole new world and you have to learn a whole lot in, in short order. Yeah. One of the problems that I've noticed is that, and it's particularly difficult if you have someone who's in college or graduate school, if they don't want to get help, there's nothing you can do. They are an adult. There are just kind of a lot of doors that are closed to you as a parent to even reach out and to, let's say, take them to a psychiatrist or even get them uh, hospitalized if necessary. It, it's, it's different if they're underage, but when they're not, there are, a, it's not easy sometimes if the person themselves doesn't want help. That's right. And in Aaron's case, that's how it was. He, he did see a psychiatrist for a few months, but he didn't like the medication. It does have a lot of side effects that would slow your thinking down and be uncomfortable. And he didn't. He, we had no way to require him to be in treatment or to be in the hospital. Only if a young person is a danger to himself or other people, if there's an immediate threat of suicide or he's uh, said or she has said things that make it seem that the young person would hurt other people. Can they be hospitalized against their will? So it's very tough. Um, very tough. And I, I don't, I don't know. I, we couldn't solve that problem. We just lived. Aaron lived with his mental illness untreated. Another piece of that, or in the book, uh, as you describe, he also at, uh, didn't stay in the United States at, at one point and lived, as you say, he lived away from you. You're in New York, he was in Boston, but then he also went to Europe to live. And so that's, I guess, in, in Paris, So and lived this kind of marginal existence um, of which you had very little control over. None. None. No, <laughs> no control over it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he he went away. He uh, he. One of the the issues I think with Aaron was that he'd always been indep- very independent from childhood. He'd wanted to do things from for himself, and he learned these habits of independence that made it less likely for him to accept help and less likely. to for him to turn to other people. And, of course, with schizophrenia, there's often paranoia. Aaron has a lot of paranoia, which also gets in the way of accepting help because you can't trust the people who are offering it. Um, I think that with Aaron, and I'm glad you brought that up, because when you have a child or a young man or young woman who is so bright, obviously he went to Swarthmore, he went to MIT, you can use a lot of, and I think maybe, is this what you're saying? I mean, you can use a lot of those skills to be independent, to do things that perhaps help you to navigate the schizophrenia, even if it's not obviously in a, in a healthy way. Uh, and it, But you, one is able to do that if you are so bright, so talented. Um, it, 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 it can do that. It can, you know, that is a something that sort of... Um, 
perhaps makes it, uh, as you say, less easy for the person themselves to to get help because they they have other strengths. Yes, that is what I'm saying. When Aaron went to um, Paris, um, his father and I were consulting uh, a wonderful psychiatrist, uh, C. Christian Beals, Chris Beals, and um, Chris said to us, uh, you don't have to worry about being in touch with him. Somebody is going to call you. He meant that he thought Aaron would get in trouble with the police and uh, we would hear from them or from the American embassy. But that never happened because he was able to um, handle himself in not a happy way. Not I don't think he, he was comfortable, but he could find a way to exist in Paris. So how did you then, find a way to exist here as a mother, feeling, I mean, knowing... Knowing that he was sick, mentally ill, he's not here, he's not near you, and you have to go and live your day-to-day life. How do you do that, or how did you do that? Well, I um, it was very difficult. Um, I think at a certain level, I was numb. I I just uh, slogged along, but it it often did feel like a slog. I, I didn't have the happiness or, or freedom in my in myself to be um, really to enjoy life in the same way. I was I, you know, I threw myself into. I was teaching, of course, so I was dealing with with people all the time, and that's a good thing. You have to have to work is an excellent thing. I think excellent therapy, whatever your work is, it, it's better than being at home thinking miserably or not thinking um, about your your child who's far away. And I threw myself into organizing. I was a part-timer at the City University. I wasn't a professor. It's nice of you to call me a professor, but I, I was a, an adjunct Do we exaggerate? Lecturer. Okay, a teacher. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, Slight I, exaggeration. It, yeah. Okay. I, um, we were doing, the adjuncts were doing a lot of organizing at that time um, to uh, increase our numbers within the union and um, negoti- be able to negotiate for better pay and benefits uh, and more job security within the city university system. And I, so that helped me because I was, working on something that I thought was meaningful. I wasn't very good at being alone. I wasn't very good at writing, which was what I would have liked to have been doing. Did you ever think that he would get better, that he eventually would get better, that he would get the, you know, he would get help, he would, you know, be able to get through this? I... Of course, early on, I thought 
that. But then I was pretty resigned to the situation. The, the one hope I had was the based on my knowledge that, in fact, over many years, schizophrenia often sort subsides uh, or remits would probably be the word that doctors use. And uh, there was a lot about John Nash Jr. in the newspapers at that time. Um, somebody had written this, a book about him. He was a mathematician who had won a Nobel Prize at, for his work as a mathematician as a very young man. After he did that work, he became schizophrenic. And when the schizophrenia subsided, he was awarded a Nobel Prize. And I, I thought, well, if we just hold on over the years, maybe some of the symptoms will let up. And, well, and there may have been... In your case, it did not happen. Be, yeah. No, it didn't happen, except that he did return to us. Um, and despite the fact that all the time he believed we were not his parents, um, we were imposters pretending to be his parents, he did come back and live with us for the last 18 months of his life. Bo- mostly, he was based with me and my partner Jay, but he also spent time with his father, and um, he, he did act as if we were his parents, even though he often had this delusion that we were not. What was it like for you after, you know, after Aaron took his own life? Well, you know, your first response, it it's very shocking. Suicide is very shocking. So the immediate responses are nightmares. I I was afraid of falling whenever I walked down the steps. Um, Just, it was hard to do anything different or new. I just wanted to stick to my routines. Um, and, and then, of course, in your mind, you go back over, were there signs that he was planning this? And yes, there were. It, looking back with the brilliant vision of hindsight, I could see indicators. And yes, there was guilt. Of course there was guilt that I hadn't seen, that I had been so frustrated and upset with him because he was so hostile and angry at me all the time. And then very slowly over time, you begin to pull yourself back together again. I wanted to write about Aaron a couple of times in the years following his death. I tried to write about him, and I was unable to. I would, I would get out my folders, and I, I would see these notes that I used to make as he was talking to me on the phone when he was in Paris or when he was in Boston. And often... 
he was pleading with me to make what was happening to him stop happening because he was sure that his father and I were colluding with other people to follow him and harass him and torment him. And it was so awful to read those conversations and remember his pain. I uh, would just put the folder away. And what really gave me the ability to write was my granddaughter's birth. She's eight now. And uh, within a few weeks of her birth, I began to write about Aaron. But it was, it's a very hard thing, and it takes a long time to absorb, you, I think. You have to, uh, it seems, as I'm listening to you, you have to nurture yourself and allow yourself the grief. And it, as you say, it, 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 it does take a long time, and then something like your granddaughter's birth is a whole renewal. I mean, it's a, a new life and, 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 a, and uh, obviously something really positive. And um, so, and it was at that point that then you were able to, to, to begin writing about Aaron. Um, Losing Aaron is, you can buy the book uh, at Amazon and I, b- bookstores everywhere. Well, not at bookstores everywhere. I'm, the publisher is a very small press and doesn't have distribution everywhere. You can go to your bookstore and ask for it, and um, I expect they'll get it, or you can get it from Amazon, or you can get it at bookstores in New Paltz. Can you, can you read it online? Um, we will have an e-book up within the next few weeks. Yes. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Um, it, it Thank was, you. Um, yeah, thanks it's quite a story. Million. Yes, and for sharing, it's a story. It's a painful story. Uh, Losing Aaron, and it's Ingrid Blaufarb-Hughes. She's the author, um, and you will be able to not only get it in hard copy, but soon we will be able to read the book online. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Joining me this morning is economist David M. Rothschild, Ph.D., a recent poll conducted by Pollfish, the world's foremost real-time mobile survey platform, surveyed 1,000 Americans who voted for Donald Trump to find out what influenced their decision. So even with the longest election season in memory, many people are still talking about the results. So this recent poll conducted by Pollfish surveyed, as I said, 1,000 Americans who voted for Donald Trump to find out what influenced their decision. Microsoft research economist David M. Rothschild and his team at PredictWise successfully predicted the results of 45 out of 50 states looking at key issues in Trump's platform and how voters felt about his candidacy. He, uh, David is uh, well-known for his prediction methods, having correctly predicted 50 of 51 electoral college outcomes in February of 2012 and an average of 20 of 24 Oscars from 2013 to 2016. And welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, David. Thank you for having me. Okay, so it's true. Everybody's still talking about Trump. I mean, and it was, but why the, you know, for what, 18 months we were talking about this, and it was like the longest uh, season, election season, and everyone's saying, can't wait till it's over, and then we'll be talking about all this stuff, but we still are, aren't we? Are we even talking about it more? He's not even president yet. He's still just president-elect. So, Well, you know, that, that's a tough question in itself, because uh, people who are listening to your radio show, people like you and me, are definitely talking about it a lot. Um, you can see that on our Twitter feeds and Facebook handles and, uh, and all around uh, the dinner table. Um, but, you know, it is something just to remember that the average American uh, throughout the election cycle wasn't spending as much time as we were um, gathering data and thinking about uh, their vote choices and the impact of it. And to an extent, uh, they have retreated as well, too. So you can see uh, that the engagement about the election uh, for the for the average American is, is definitely drops off a lot after the election. Um, and But we'll see that it is probably going to take a very different pattern uh, this election cycle uh, than it did in previous years uh, as uh, the questions linger over what Trump will actually do, uh, you know, going to this question of taking him seriously or literally or both uh, as he becomes uh, the president on January 20th. David, who is the average American? Uh, the average American is a great question. <laughs> um, <you> know, so <laughs> Tell us who or have, she, who, yeah. We have numbers to, you know, look at uh, the stratification of the uh, American electorate, which is a little different than the uh, American at, in general, of course, because we're looking at voter uh, turnout rates between uh, somewhere, you know, somewhere close to 60% of eligible voters. We don't actually know who all the eligible voters are. Uh, you know, we have an idea of median income and 
uh, in household income and personal income in, in the high 40s and, and median income around sixty. Thousand uh, dollars, but you know what's the average American when you talk about race? You can't average that, of course. We know the percentage breakdowns of, of different races and uh, education levels. About a third uh, with no college, uh, sorry, just high school or less. About a third who have taken some college or uh, associate's degree, and then uh, a third with college degrees. Um, and the, the breaking down of the American uh, uh, population is is quite interesting because uh, there are things that cut across us, but there's also things that obviously are very distinct among different uh, demographic clusters. Well, let's talk about the Trump, the people who did, or nearly a quarter of Trump's support, as you say, uh, 23% would not necessarily have voted for Trump. This is, uh, they would have voted for Bernie Sanders. Um, So that's a lot, really. A quarter of those Trump supporters would have voted for Bernie Sanders. How do you know that? Well, look, um, so these are the results of one poll, um, and it is important to remember that, uh, you know, the hypothetical outcomes are always tricky um, because uh, the dossier that Kurt Eichenwald had on Bernie Sanders was quite thick. Um, And in a traditional campaign, you would assume that would have had a negative effect on support of him. You know, he's more of a blank slate to people, although it's hard to tell with this campaign how everything would have played out. Uh, But definitely... Uh, it's pretty traditional after the election cycle, and I think this is the overarching, most important thing, that people flock to the winner. Um, so election cycle after election cycle, if you do post-election surveys, you're going to see a surprising bump of people who claim to have voted for the winner and people who, uh, who claim uh, that they would, they would have voted for the winner now. Um, and you're seeing uh, a small bump on average, net, net bump on average for Trump, uh, but overall, nothing like what you've seen in the previous years. Uh, you're seeing at best seeing him at, uh, you know, tie with Clinton or, or so on, on some of the polling that we're doing post-election, which is to say that he is starting with the greatest disadvantage that we've ever seen uh, in modern times on approval, favorability, um, and how people view their choices in the previous election, uh, which certainly is the opposite of the uh, mandate uh, that he is uh, demanding that he has won. So what do you think, what are the implications for that? If he's starting with the biggest disadvantage, at least of anybody that we know who has become president uh, or who is president, what are the implications for his presidency? What do you see? What do you predict? Well, you know, so there's uh, one kind of factor which is important to say that, well, he does control uh, or his party controls uh, all of Congress and soon to be uh, SCOTUS, uh, Supreme Court of the United States as well, which is uh, a huge benefit regardless of the slim margin uh, that you may or may not have. Um, but uh, on the flip side, of course, uh, there is a radical disagreement over policy between uh, what he is claiming he wants uh, and what uh, his own party's Congress wants. And I think that the most logical assumption is that what we are going to see are things that come at the unique intersection of the Republican Congress and the Republican president. Uh, and first and foremost, of course, is uh, a repeal of Obamacare, uh, along with uh, very large tax cuts, mainly geared at high-income earners, and, uh, of course, Supreme Court nominee uh, that is anti-choice. So would you say, do you think that he conned those voters who voted for him, um, that he really sought them out and he knew 
he knew he he was very calculated about that group of people that you know in the rust belt and those people um who were not highly educated and then once he you know got the vote and he's president elect that he's sort of done a 180 in terms of what he intends to do as president in terms of his policies that it won't benefit great, that group it, of it's people it's a great question i i'm going to assume that you have a very wonky and intelligent uh, viewership who wants to wants to hear a wonky wonky answer on this but the the answer is that first cut it's important to note that uh, let's go to obamacare this is a great example so you know this is polling uh, that we've done uh, I've done with Paul Fish. It's a it's a great way to get really kind of quick and and effective polling out there. And we've been out there month after month asking about Obamacare. And what you see is very clear that the moniker Obamacare is very unpopular. Um, but it's a little bit misleading because uh, while more people dislike Obamacare than like Obamacare, a portion of those people who dislike Obamacare dislike Obamacare because it does not go far enough, uh, because they want either universal health care or a public insurance option that they can buy. Um, and so if you add those people to the pro-Obamacare camp, it's, it's larger than the people who are actually against it. But more important is that every single component of Obamacare, with the exception of the individual mandate that you must buy insurance, is exceedingly popular. Uh, we went out there, we saw... 75% of Trump voters uh, supporting the Medicaid expansion uh, that accounts for 15 million of the 20 million people who have received uh, health insurance under uh, the uh, Obama uh, care system. And so, um, you know, overwhelming support for coverage for pre-existing conditions, overwhelming support uh, for people being able to stay on their parents' health care plans if uh, up to 26 years old overwhelming support uh, for even coverage of contraceptives. Um, and this is true for voters as a whole, uh, especially kind of Clinton or Democratic voters, but even among Republican and Trump voters, we see support for these, everything except for the individual mandate. And so your first blush would be to think, ah, oh, these people uh, that voted uh, against uh, Clinton who have Obamacare uh, were confused or didn't understand it, but it's something that we need to learn more about. Uh, there was an excellent piece yesterday in Vox uh, where they interviewed a bunch of Obamacare enrollees who voted for Trump, and they seemed to have an understanding that they were on Obamacare, um, and they also understood that Trump was talking about uh, repealing Obamacare, but they did not think that he would actually repeal it without replacing key parts and uh, seemed quite stunned when the interviewer uh, in this article talked to them about prices, the new uh, HHS uh, secretary's plan, which would, uh, for some of them, eliminate their coverage and other of them uh, limit their coverage. Um, and so uh, it's definitely uh, a question about messaging and a question about where uh, the process broke down for people connecting the policies that uh, Donald Trump was talking about um, and claiming that he's saying that I would preserve the social safety net versus the policies on his website and things that he was revealing, which showed that he is going to likely let a lot of the social safety net lapse. 
You know, well, I think to me, this is key. And when you talk about the word messaging, because it is messaging, messaging, messaging. And I don't know how many people actually read Vox, but um, I, I do. But I, I think that don't you think that the, the press really has a lot to do with it? I mean, in terms of the messaging and and really not focusing on what the key message is. We get just a lot of this sensational news, whether it's Fox or even MSNBC or most of the news uh, doesn't really talk about exactly what, well, just what you were talking about, the very specifics. What does it mean if you don't want Obamacare or, or you're saying that you want to repeal Obamacare? We don't get that in the news. I don't think, you know, that's not what we read every day, even in the New York Times or the Washington Post or, as I mentioned, the, uh, you know, uh, television shows. I mean, the MSM, those, the networks. I think that's a huge I, problem. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a tough question. So the, the media is an industry. Um, they get paid by advertisers, and that's contingent on viewership. And they have made assumptions, and media, of course, is a very varied product, but they've made assumptions that people don't want wonk. They don't want policy. And what they provide is a lot about emotions. I don't like Obamacare. I like Obamacare. Uh, but they don't get into what is Obamacare and how will Obamacare affect people on average or, or people even specifically. Um, and that is definitely something which uh, I have been guilty of by talking more about the horse race than I should and less about the horse race between candidates and less about the implications of the election. Um, and it's something that I feel like I've introspectively looked at and said, I want to change. I want to be pumping out data for people about the components of Obamacare, the impact of Obamacare, and same thing for taxes and the economy and trade and immigration, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, and I hope that if the, there's more people supplying these things, uh, that the media reports on these things. When you go to this question about Obamacare, uh, Obama left Obamacare hanging. Uh, he, he got it passed uh, and then didn't work on the messaging. And the Republicans worked at this messaging of making Obamacare unpopular uh, for eight years without any concern about the effect of Obamacare on the people um, and uh, being able to completely cloud over uh, the, the impact of it. And, and we see this on other things as well uh, and other places where uh, the Republican messaging has uh, trumped the uh, components that go into it. So, for instance, on economics, overwhelming support uh, from Trump voters for raising taxes on income over $250,000. We've seen this year in and year out. Um, and then with detailed polling we've done of Trump voters and Republicans uh, this year and post-election. But yet they still support the quote-unquote Republican tax plan. Um, and it is a disconnect that is something uh, that we're trying to understand and learn more from, but it's, it's one that it could cuts across many topics where uh, the messaging has won up so much that you have claims of support for this moniker uh, where you don't uh, have claims of support for the kind of key components of that plan itself. Yeah, I would agree. And I think actually one of the other areas, which I think is maybe, well, it's up there, maybe number one, I believe in climate change or I don't believe in climate change. What does that mean? Uh, yeah, and you're right on there. Um, you know, we there's uh, a bit of more disagreement, a bit more partisan divide about uh, quote unquote believing in climate change. Uh, uh, you know, as somebody who has devoted their life to science, it's very upsetting to see people 
even debate uh, these types of things. That these are questions that scientists uh, should and have answered, uh, and what, whatever the public feels about it shouldn't uh, dictate policy. Um, but again, uh, you know, if you look at this question about trade-offs for environment versus uh, uh, short-term financial gain, uh, you do see uh, support from the general population uh, that is somewhat divided, but generally supports the idea that we should accept trade-offs for environmental protection. Um, so again, you see people who say, I love the idea of eliminating regulations to make business go, right? So this is a key Republican platform. Um, but that is more popular than eliminating any given regulation. So if you start asking people, should we loosen environmental regulations to allow a lot of drilling in protected areas? Uh, you know, that doesn't have great support. Should we uh, you know, cut the FDA from protecting our food? Oh, well, no, no one really supports that. Um, uh, should we eliminate the consumer, consumer uh, uh, Finance Protection Bureau that they're under Elizabeth Warren? Uh, no, well, no one really supports that. And again, you can go down the line. They love this idea of cutting regulations, but they don't like the idea of cutting particular regulations. Um, and so, again, it falls under another group of things in which um, the, uh, the, the Republican plan is popular, uh, but the components of the Republican plan are not. Yeah, well, the thing about the climate change, for instance, I mean, don't we have to, and just, I'm trying to simplify it, like, I, climate change, I mean, do you, for instance, do you think Donald Trump does not believe in climate change? I mean, I think that he's quite aware that there is climate change, but what, how are you going, what are you going to do, what are your, how are you going to respond to it? Isn't that the issue? Uh uh, and maybe you've described yeah. that already. Well, let's, yeah. I think, and I'll, I'll borrow this from uh, a former Republican under George W. Bush, Christy Todd Whitman, who was on NPR this morning, put it nicely, which says it's almost, it's almost irrelevant what Donald Trump believes or doesn't believe on climate change. But every single person that he's appointed who has uh, control over regulations involving it, from the interior to energy to uh, the EPA itself, have all espoused that we should loosen regulations uh, to protect uh, the climate, uh, whether or not the air, water, or land, uh, and that we should be lowering subsidies that go around, obviously, alternative energy. So uh, regardless of what his beliefs are, uh, you know, he may waffle and very, very typical uh, here, say something that he does support, but his policies are what you should be tracing and the people he's put into place to implement policies, uh, you know, do not support uh, scientific research or initiatives to, to help protect the environment. Of course, the, uh, inv- uh, the Energy Department itself um, had this questionnaire sent out in which they were looking to uh, get the individual names of people who have attended or participated in research or conferences involving uh, climate change. Um, and we're not sure what the goal of that was. Fortunately, the department has refused to fill it out, but it could be to eliminate career civil servants who are following uh, the initiatives of the previous administrations. Well, let's talk about another topic. What about uh, the Russians hacking uh, into our, uh, hacking into the Democratic Party's uh, system? Uh, and also, I guess, the Republicans, although that, whatever the, you know, the information wasn't made public. So, um does the average person know what that is or what it means or what the implication, we're talking about the average person, what the implications are for that in terms of our country? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it's something which we'll be pulling out a lot more over the coming weeks and months. But I think that 
as of now, uh, I think the information is reasonably low um, about people's understanding. There's a lot of conflation between, say, Hillary's servers and John Podesta's emails. John Podesta's emails were not taken off of Hillary's server. There was a separate phishing incident uh, in which his emails, were, his Gmail account was compromised. Uh, similarly, uh, with this question about Russian hacking into the DNC versus uh, Russians. Uh, spreading fake news versus possible back-channel communications between uh, Russian uh, agents and Donald Trump's advisors. And then, of course, this new revelation about the possibility of the Russians hacking the RNC but not releasing the information. Um, A lot of this is new, of course, and some of it has not been uh, very clearly explained to the American population uh, separately. So I think that there is, well, I know there's a great deal of confusion and when we've asked these things, um, and it's one of those things that we expect uh, to seep out and become either uh, a bigger issue or, or a non-entity over the next few weeks and months. So there's something to follow very closely, uh, which is also why it's important uh, for those people who think these are things are important to, to keep hammering um, at this. Because uh, just like the, uh, the media and the Republicans hammered at Clinton's uh, server for, for months and ultimately years, basically, uh, these types of things sometimes take a while. And um, whether or not there's a large congressional investigation or not, it still remains to be seen. Um, but it's definitely something that, that may uh, lose steam if, if people do not uh, keep at that issue. Do you think we have the capacity, we, the average American, to understand the, the, the info, even if we get the information, let's say, and it's, you know, they keep hammering it out and we do get information and we don't just get all the emotional stuff. Do we have the capacity to understand it, to understand I, what it means? And, yeah. I mean, I, I think so. Um, I think that people understood uh, Watergate um, and, and what it meant to, to, to happen there. And of course, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people, including, I guess I'm at the youngest end of the Cold War generation, uh, uh, you know, remember when, when that was a threat and a concern. And, um, and I think that it is a unique time when partisan politics trumps uh, international concerns. Um, and uh, that's definitely being the case here. And, you know, you hope for a moment where the threat of Russian involvement in the U.S. election transcends party politics. It clearly has not in this situation. And there'll be efforts on, on from righteous Republicans as well as um, Democrats, of course, to, uh, to force that transcendence. And it'll be a very interesting to see uh, how that progresses over the next uh, weeks and months, and um, and then how that seeps into the American population. You know, it's a it's a really important question about what leads what here uh, with the media or the politicians on this issue, and um, definitely more information is needed. But uh, right now, it's been definitely the media and the occasional big posts coming out of uh, the you know the Washington Post this weekend that have have forced the hand. Of, of the politicians, uh, because there was really no move forward movement uh, up until this weekend, despite uh, the obvious, obvious implications of the WikiLeaks um, uh, 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 data on the 2016 election. Right, we have a few minutes left. So, David, what about day one when President Trump, uh, his first day of, the, what, the first 100 days or whatever, what are your predictions in terms of what do you think, what, what's going what, Give us like a, a, a short list of what you think will happen. Uh, sure. So, look, I think that what I'll be looking for, and especially how it reacts to public opinion, uh, is 
this question of Obamacare, uh, tax cuts, and 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 health and women's health care in particular around around SCOTUS. Uh, all of these issues, um, there is a clear divide between uh, what the Republican elites want and what even Republican voters really care about uh, when it comes to Obamacare. I think that. Well, I know. Sorry, we've asked about this. We know that there's. Uh, an, ex- an expectation that it will be repeal and replaced by something that basically covers all of the things that people like. Uh, most likely situation right now, following from the policy side, is repeal and wait, uh, in which they repeal Obamacare without an alternative. Uh, that will be uh, make people pretty anxious. And so it'll be interested to see how they can push down the population uh, they will probably try to blame the, uh, the Democrats if say Obamacare is failing. Um, if they say put a sunset provision on subsidies for January 1st, 2019, so the two uh, uh, right after the midterm elections, um, and that will be a very interesting thing to follow from a public policy perspective. Number two, taxes. Um, I think that there is, again, strong agreement among the Republican elite that, to reduce uh, the income tax rates, uh, and corporate tax rates, which generally affect uh, the wealthy, um, whether or not you go down to 33%, as suggested by Paul Ryan's plan, or 25% uh, suggested by Donald Trump's plan for the top income tax bracket. Uh, there's really no way to make this up. It will lead to uh, uh, soaring, soaring deficits uh, and uh, uh, massive, massive uh, 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 problems with, with funding the federal government. Um, and so this is something that, that's wildly unpopular, unpopular from, from the Republican electorate to the Democratic electorate. So it will be interesting to see how they can they spin this, especially with Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary claiming they will not do any net tax reductions for the upper class, which seems very surprising considering every single plan they proposed uh, uh, since basically 1980 has, has not followed that lead. Um, and then ultimately, of course, the Supreme Court nominations, which we expect to come out pretty quickly, uh, and other federal judiciary uh, picks and um, uh, with the gaping holes in the federal judiciary and, of course, the open spot on the Supreme Court, uh, how the Democrats respond. Um, it's going to be uh, very difficult for them. Um, but how much it resonates with the general population, especially around abortion rights. Um, you saw K6 sign a 20 week abortion ban uh, yesterday in the state of Ohio. Uh, fortunately, did not sign the heartbeat bill, which would have been a test case for the Supreme Court. Um, but you will see. Uh, some pretty quick movement there, and it'll be very interesting to see how the Republic does or does not respond. Ultimately, the Republic has not been very strong about responding to social issues uh, coming out of the Supreme Court. That's a bit more difficult for people to comprehend and work their way through. So we really expect a more visceral response from the Obamacare and the tax situation, uh, which pretty much the Republicans uh, are very likely to do uh, right off the bat. Well, I have to stop you there. That's a lot of information. It's a lot of information to process and to think about. Um, th- I thank you so much for being on the show today. Microsoft Research Economist David M. Rothschild, Ph.D. Uh, thanks. Uh, Polfish, we'll be looking at your surveys, obviously, at the be- in, uh, starting in January. <laughs> um, I'm Ka- We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. 
Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, 